Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now this week we're speaking to one of the world's, and I underline that, most influential leaders in technology. Her name is Sarah Fryer and she is the CEO of a neighbourhood community app called Next Door. Sarah's had a stellar career. Studied engineering at Oxford, did her MBA at Stanford, worked at Goldman Sachs, was Senior Vice President at Salesforce.com, joined Square, the payment device company, as CFO, Worked with people like Jack Dorsey, both founder Square and Twitter. That's a pretty good resume. So putting all that together, her interest in engineering, as a kid, growing up in Northern Ireland, she's now taking all that experience, all that knowledge, all that study, all that drive and enthusiasm, and making Nextdoor a success in a saturated market of social networks, in particular right here in Australia. She's based in Silicon Valley. She's here in Australia to promote the app, which she launched here exactly one year ago. So let's get into it. Sarah Fryer, welcome to The Mentor. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. <laughs> did you like the pause or what? I did. It was a very pregnant pause yeah, there was, for a moment. <laughs> totally was, totally was. Well, I mean, I, I'm sort of fairly intrigued. I mean, you're here as part of your app next door. Mm-hmm right? That's right. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Where did you grow up and where did you go to school? Take me back to like 12, 10, I don't know, around that territory, you know? Okay. Young, young Sarah. Well, despite the terrible American accent, which I'm sure everyone is now listening to and rolling their eyes at, I grew up in Northern Ireland. So I'm a Brit at heart and always will be. So I grew up on... Belfast? Actually on the border. So I grew up just outside Derry, northwest, County Tyrone. Yep. Um, And I grew up in a really small little community, um, mostly a farming community. But I grew up in a tiny village. And on the STEM side, I, I just always loved sciences. I was great at math, loved taking things apart. And so slowly tracked into engineering. I didn't really know what engineering was, frankly, Growing up where I grew up, if you were good at science, you became a doctor or an accountant. Those were the two paths. And even yeah. to this day, I don't think my mom's really sure what I do. But my brother became a doctor, so that took a lot of pressure off. Um, and I took this engineering route. Yeah, but I, 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 I yeah, it's when I, like when I was a kid, like I had no sense of anything about what I should do. I, I didn't grow up in a farming community. I grew up here in Sydney. Um, but my parents never spoke to me about anything I should do, and I, no one I knew did had any idea about what they were doing. 
did you think to yourself, I'm right, you're good at maths, but did you think to yourself, wow, Sarah, one day you might become something to do in science? Did you, were you sort of ambitious or did you have those, those views or did you pray to God that you're going to be like uh, something in the science environment? I, I definitely dreamt. I knew I wanted to, um, like, frankly, I knew I kind of wanted to get out of Northern Ireland. And I mean that in the most respectful way because I love where I'm from. My mom and dad still live there. All my family's still there. But I really wanted to go travel. I had complete itchy wanderlust feet from, you know, I don't know if it was a 10, but certainly by the time I was 14, 15, I was pouring over atlases, always kind of planning where I'd go. And we really didn't go anywhere with my family. Um, and so it was like a really big deal. And actually at 18, I found in my local career room at school a, spo- a sponsorship or a scholarship from Arthur Anderson. And what intrigued me about the scholarship was frankly not this business that they would unfold and I would get to learn you know, what business is about and become an accountant. It was because they would give you a four-month travel stipend where you could then go travel the world after you had done your scholarship. And that was the thing I was really driven to go get. Uh, so, um, you, so Arthur Anderson, I don't even know if they existed, Arthur Anderson, but uh, in those days, Arthur Anderson, just for those people listening, was a, a global chartered accounting firm, probably in the top five or six or something like that. So do they offer you an internship as, to, to go with that? They did. Yeah. So that's what I went and did the year before I went to university, um, which is not atypical for Australians or Brits, very no. atypical in the U.S. But at 18... I went off. I worked for Arthur Anderson. I, you know, they kind of trained you as an accountant, um, and then and I learned a lot about business actually. And that was probably a moment where I fell in love with business because I didn't really know what business was up to that point. Although I was still on the science bent and you know wanted to go do my engineering degree, but I really loved this whole wow, you can create things from a business perspective. So was Sarah Fry, like, did you grow, on a, grow up on a farm or lived in a farming, in a, in a village environment? I lived in a village, but all think of it as my entire mom's family who really lived around us, all were farmers. So I spent all my weekends and summers on the farm. So it's kind of a little bit of both. Yeah, so, so you're a, like a country girl. Ah, absolutely. Yeah, and yes. and your dad, what did your dad do? My dad was the personnel manager, so the HR person for the local mill, which is what my village was named after, Cyan Mills. And so he was a big people person. My mom was the district nurse, so they're both very big community people. Yeah, yeah. So, so you had a, you had a nurse, <laughs> and you had someone working in an organization in in a like a, a sort of a blue collar yeah. type environment. Very much. You grew up in a, a small village. Small village, like yeah. Few hundred people, exactly. Yeah, a few hundred people um, in Northern Ireland, and uh, and somehow, like I don't know how the hell you did it, but somehow you cracked a um, um, an internship with Arthur Anderson in where? Where was it? So originally London, London and then Manchester. Yeah, so I L- went to the big wilds Whoa. of England. Well, that's a big deal. It was <laughs> at actually. eighteen. It was. I was mind blown. I remember showing up at the train station in London with literally my two suitcases. My mom had like just put me on a plane. Um, I showed up. I remember having to get on a train. I had these two huge suitcases because everything I owned was packed there. And I was just gone until, I guess, Christmas when I would go home and see my family. But, did you, but when, you, when you're walking out the gate of your house, when you're 18, when, like, just, you had these two big suitcases and someone drove you to the airport or, some, or something yeah. like that. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, what was the thought going through your head? Well, I mean, most kids be crapping their pants. Like, uh, I just, I never felt fear. I just felt like such a sense of, Wonder, actually, is probably the right phrase. Not even like excitement, but just wonder is what I remember. And I I remember that feeling all the time of like, 
almost like, gosh, I am so lucky. How the hell did they ever let me in here? And even when I got inside of companies, so you know, you show up as Arthur Anderson to do their audit, I'd just be so intrigued. Like I remember being in like one company that was they, they you know, it was in Manchester, so it was very um industrial. I can't remember they made piping. I can't even remember what the company was. But like you had this big like scrapyard almost out back where you had to go count stock counts. And another company where they had like wool. I remember doing the stock count for wool that you knit with and having to go like count, you know, the red wool and the blue wool. <laughs> and I just felt like this intense sense of wonder all the time of like, how the hell are they letting me in here? Because like People growing up in those village environments, you tend to have a lot of support. Like, you know a lot of people, everybody yeah. knows. Oh, there's Sarah. There's, Hello, Sarah. How are you going? Like, neighbors. You know all your neighbors. Friends. Yes. Um, everybody sort of knows everybody. Yes. And it's actually quite a good upbringing. It's quite it's stable. It's wonderful. It's quite, yeah. yeah, it's quite stable. Except I was in Northern Ireland and we were blowing each other up as yeah, well. Yeah, wasn't Don't that, forget wasn't that, that good. <laughs> but that's probably more in Belfast. No, 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 was no. Was no, happening no. where you oh, were too? Oh, yeah. No, I, yeah. I lived on the border, which was the worst. Like Strabane, right? my local town, to this day, if you Wikipedia it, for, the, for a town of its size, for three decades, it was the most blown up town, including during the whole Bosnian-Serbian crisis. Like even then, we still won, you know, most bomb town of the year type of thing. So, well, that's no, worth That's a good we had a lot. <laughs> we had a lot of issues going on. <laughs> but, but, but do you think, because I'm trying to work out, what are the influences that form up Sarah Fryer yeah. to get her to where she is today? I mean, I, you know, when you read through your the brief I got here, it's ridiculous. It's so good, you know. Like it's sort of like <laughs> whatever. <laughs> no, it's what everybody, every woman would love to have it. And I've spoken to a few people; they all look up to you. A lot of women, in particular, particular, particularly women with technology sort of bents, mm-hmm. but they probably don't know much about how you grew up, the influences, why, what formed Sarah Fry? Was it just a genetic? I mean, what is it? What What do you think? I mean, that's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think a lot of it is genetic. I think your kind of internal motivation to go do things and kind of whether or not you have a fear factor of it. But I do think, I mean, very blessed. I had these two parents who were super community driven. So a lot of that comes back now. And we're going to talk about it next year yep. later. But like, such a great arc in a way to a story because I feel like, wow, I get to now work on the thing that my parents were trying to do single-handedly. Um, I definitely felt a lot of support. Well, can I just stop you there? So yeah. did you, you're saying your parents tried to do the next door concept, not not online obviously, but but yeah. but They did it anyway. physically, like man-to-man, hand, you know, like if you needed to go raise, like to this day, I'll call my mom and dad, what did you do this weekend? My dad will be like, I went out collecting for the Marie Curie Fund, which is, you know, mm. for cancer research. You know, I'm like, okay, like literally, he's 80. He walked around knocking on people's doors saying, hey, would you like to donate? Um, which is something we can do on the platform now. Or, you know, if there was an event going on at the church, my dad would be the person sending out flyers or putting the the poster up in the store so that everyone saw it. And so... It's this amazing ability to now build a platform at scale to try to emulate in a way what small town or small village, you know, community activists like my parents were doing. So, like, are you saying to me in a real simple, like, if I put it really simply, you've taken what you saw as a child and um, you've basically used your technology expertise and turned it into a global business? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's too simple a I mean, I'm probably not doing Sometimes it Sometimes the most simple things are kind of the right story in the end because they're so core to who you are that you don't have to 
there's nothing forced about it. Um, it just feels kind of who you are and there's no dissonance, right? There's, um, there's this wonderful Japanese book and phrase called Ikigai, which is the idea of when you're in flow, it's when your purpose, like everything is kind of directed at the thing that is the thing that motivates or inspires you most. And I think a lot of people in life separate their lives into professional, right? I've got my career and then, you know, I'm going to be philanthropic or I'm going to give back or I'm going to play a sport or whatever the, you know, they have like their fun life and then their work life. And I think I love this idea of like when you're most potent is when those two things overlap and you feel like, okay, I wake up every day with something to prove about this thing that I care most about. Yeah, that's that's sort of interesting. Um, I mean, you did say some people put themselves into the professional bucket and both you and I, we did that in our early years. I, mm-hmm. I, I, to me, yeah. to be frank with you, I think that's sort of a necessary building block to, get, to yes. get to the point where you are now. Right. Um, it's, it's, it does take some time though. So Yeah, you don't have the… You can't do the philanthropic thing early. N- no, although I think you can weave it in much earlier than most people think. Um, I think of it just as a natural part of your life, which is, I think, another gift of my parents, right? We just were always doing stuff like, you know, forced labor or not. Like we had to run the jumble sale at the church. We had to help with like collection or whatever it was. Like a lot of it revolved around the church because a very religious community. Um, or if we were raising money for the school, we had to go do the sponsored walk. And so, you know, I look back now and sometimes, you know, I talk to my dad, like when he's doing that sort of fundraise and I'm like, how much did you raise? And he's like, oh, 300 pounds, you know, and I think, oh my God, like, like there must be more scale to this, but you forget the humanity. Like he also got a lot out of just knocking on people's doors for an afternoon, got him out and about, got him talking to people. And Do you think people, I won't, I won't say your dad in particular, but do you think people do that? for others or they do it for themselves? Yeah, I think this is the deep, and I, I don't want to call it the dirty secret, but the deep secret of when you give, you think it's for others, but frankly, you get back so much more. So I'm trying to teach my kids at the moment that when we go and do a volunteer, they will feel so good afterwards. And I think that's kind of missing a little in life. Like people have become so individualistic and with that, frankly, a little selfish. But the irony is like, if they wanted to be most selfish, they would go give more because what they would get back. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. Do you, do you, should we should we call it being selfish? I mean, when you give, yeah. When you when you Maybe. love to give, I mean, it's because you love the the, the 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 chemical release you get by giving. There is a gift in that to yourself. Is it is it really selfish or what is that? Or is it just human nature? Maybe human nature, but it is, there's a selfishness in it. I mean, coming back to the community point, like when you go out and spend that time in your community to help seniors, or maybe you're volunteering with kids, you know, I often end up back in the school talking to lots of young kids. And in particular, I really love to talk to girls to try to ignite this love of science and take away some of the fear of it. I'm getting this big gift back because you feel good. Like you walk out and you're like, oh, I did something that kind of mattered today. But if your community is getting stronger and healthier, that's almost a selfish give back as well, right? Because stronger communities, right, test scores go up, health gets better, people's wealth goes up. So there's this huge kind of mechanism that keeps paying back. And we've kind of lost sight of it. Like maybe we're not pitching it the right way, right? If well, were, it's funny you said because yeah. I was only just thinking about myself and I hate to be thinking about myself, but I do. 
Um, and I don't mind admitting it, but the highlight of my week, to be honest with you, is doing my podcast. Um, I feel like I'm giving, like I have a great guest like you today and, and I really appreciate that. Um, and um, what I'm able to do though is give our listeners exposure to someone like you. And for me though, it's selfish. I, I feel like I'm being selfish because I actually enjoy the the outcome giving to them. Do you really think there's any real intercourse and or connection between anything we do? We do everything for ourselves, I think. I have a conversation with myself. I'm having a conversation with myself right now. You're listening, but mm-hmm. I'm really having a conversation with myself. When you're speaking to me, I'm listening, but you're having a conversation with yourself. It's a sort of a form of narcissism, a good form of narcissism. It's good. That's how our that's how human nature works, I think. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? It's a great question. So I... I have, uh, I'm going to sound like I'm trying to be holier than thou right now, but bear with me. Everyone's holier than so me. Don't I worry have, about that. Um, I have a, a nonprofit. So my side hustle is a nonprofit called Ladies Who Launch. And what Ladies Who Launch is focused launch on. Launch or lunch? La- it's a pun. Launch. So it's women who actually get out there and are building and creating companies. So thank you. Because so many men will say things like those, that thing you have, like women who get together for I'm like, no, no, ladies who launch. Um, And it's an event series and we get women to come be guest speakers, right? And talk. And they're talking to an audience of usually 200 to 300 women. And I do wonder, because to me, that's my gift. It's my equivalent of your podcast, Mm. right? I get to interview the most wonderful women across the world telling their story. Um, And in that moment, like, yes, I'm setting this up because I want to give to these 200, 300 women sitting in the audience, you know, who need that kind of dose of inspiration for when times get tough. But I feel so selfish about it because for me, it's a delightful moment. Like, you know, you wake up in the morning, you just rethink that amazing story that you heard three weeks ago when we did Ladies Who Launch in Denver, for example. There's there is a narcissism about it because it's a uh, you now selfish. own it now. You, I own that now, story. It's fucking yeah. yours now. You're going, oh my God, this is mine. And I didn't do anything about it. I just sat there and talked to someone because I do it all the time too. Yeah. And I grew up in a really religious family. And uh, you sound like you grew up in a, you know, a church-going family yeah, and a exactly. church-going village environment. Absolutely. I get guilty about it sometimes. <laughs> and I shouldn't. I keep saying, logically, what are you being fucking guilty for, Mark? You've oh. done nothing wrong. You like, like, actually, you ask anybody who listened to what you had to the interview today with Sarah, that's how it was great. But how do you deal with that? I mean, do you, or do you just say, stuff it, that's how it is, and that's what I'm doing? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think if you overthink it too much, you have to, in the end, just get on with things. Like part of being a builder is if you think and don't just do, you'll never actually build anything. So I think I could like endlessly loop on who's getting what out of Ladies Who Launch. All I know is like when I leave that evening, the energy in the room and the number of emails and inbounds that I get. And people I still, we, we did one in Sydney actually probably three years ago. And I still will talk to some of the women who came who struggle with their business. And what's great is you just, you create a bond and you've had that moment and then you never quite know and that thing will come up. And um, I was just talking to one of the women I work with at Nextdoor about Umpma at Chai Valley, which is an amazing business here in, in Sydney. And when I met her, she was a lawyer working four days a week as a lawyer to make her family happy, Indian immigrant family, and four days a week as building her business, Chaivali. That is eight days a week. I can do math, but that was the whole point. She's like, I work eight days a week. 
And I was like, oh my, you were going to die. Like, pick your passion. And as far as I know, she has leaned into now building the business. Like, she wants chai to be the the coffee, kind of what the, you know, the Starbucks of the world built. Like, she build the chai. And, you know, once in a while over this three-year period or whatever since we met, she might ping me on a quick business question. And, like, that's the gift because... Now you do have like a network of someone that might just be able to make that right intro or whatever. Do you for think you. she knows that you're actually receiving a gift? I hope she knows yeah. that. I feel I think like that's I, worth telling yeah, people that. It is. Okay then. You like what you've been hearing each week? Well, there's plenty more where that came from. I've just launched my playbook for success which is an online masterclass giving you my framework for running your business. And to reward my loyal podcast listeners, I'm now going to give 20% off to the first 500 new subscribers. So head to mentor.com.au and use the code podcast. That's right, podcast at the checkout when you join up to my first online masterclass. See you there. Well, I'm back with Sarah Fryer and we sort of jumped around a little bit in terms of a career. We really didn't talk too much about it, but I really want to talk about this concept of Nextdoor. I want to know, just explain to everybody who listens to this podcast, what is Nextdoor straight up? Sure. So Nextdoor is the private network for your neighborhood. Uh, It is founded on a belief that we want to pull people together through proximity, not through preference. So the easiest way to explain it is Nextdoor is your local graph. In the same way, Facebook might be your friend graph. LinkedIn is your professional graph. We're all about local. And so a lead will plant a flag and say, this is the neighborhood boundary that I want to create a Nextdoor neighborhood in. And then we a lead, a lead, a lead, what, and what? these are community activists. They're usually people who really care about their community for one reason or another. Do they bid for that or? Uh, no. Um, if you show up and you are so inclined to say, "I want to grow this neighborhood," we welcome you in with open arms. So I live in Watsons Bay. So if I yeah. say I want to be the lead for Watsons yeah. Bay, if if the neighborhood hasn't already been formed, yep. we would say, "Come on in, Mark. Please cool. do that for us." Um, And from there, really, we're about how do we help you stay informed about your neighborhood? And it can be the whole gamut of what was that noise to here's a great event that's coming up, you know, in time for the holidays. Well, I got a big Uh, pub down the road for me, so I just want to talk about, like, how much fucking noise they make every Friday night. That also may often happen on the platform. And then help you get things done. So I need a babysitter this weekend. Ah, I need a plumber. And I usually say it's... Things that you can't Google search for. I'm not going to Google search for a babysitter because I might get the axe murderer showing up to look yep. after my kids. Um, and I can't Amazon Prime it. So things that I can't get delivered to my home. So I need, you know, my bicycle tire fixed. I need the leaky tap fixed. Dog all walked. those sorts of things. Dog walked is a, is a really good example of things that you would find on Nextdoor. Um, and then finally, after driving all that utility, so help me get all this stuff done, What we ultimately hope to do is drive affinity, so really to bring communities back together. So our founders were taken with the fact that neighbors more and more didn't know each other. So we talked about my upbringing where I knew every neighbor. And how do we start restitching those community ties back together again? Because in a world where we're all getting way more um, polarized and kind of retreating to our tribes, how do we bring people back together? And that's where this power of proximity is important because 
you typically don't live around people that think exactly like you. And so causing you to have conversations as you walk down the street or maybe as you stand on the side of a kid's football match at the weekend starts to rebuild those community links. Is there a kid element to this? In other words, young people can go on there and sort of uh, get their very first job? Yeah. How I do mean, you do it? It's it's a wonderful part of the platform because, first of all, because it's local and verified, parents feel like it's a safe place yep. for their kid to go on. And so what I'll see is, actually just saw it last week, someone saying, hey, I'm a uh, junior in high school. I'm qualified to um, babysit. I have my CPR. And I also love dogs. So if anyone needs dog walking, my rates are $20 an hour. And I see a ton of teens. I see college students coming home and saying, I could tutor. I'm an expert in math or whatever. And so a lot of that goes on on the platform. That's it's awesome. Because, first job. So, so young people are embracing this. Yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah. and sort of, it's interesting because parents can oversee it too. They can sort of look at it too. They can sort of see that their kids put up the bid yeah. and that somebody may well have said, yeah, come on. And it might be someone they know too, though, by the way. Yeah. Look, uh, come and tutor my kid yeah. uh, in maths or. It, it goes, come. it's trust. Like, think about it. Like, on the one hand, like, if my daughter, my 14 year old, was going to go babysit, I kind of want to know who she's babysitting for. Yeah. But on the other side, if some teenager is showing up to babysit my kids, I kind of want to know who the teenager is. And so there's this kind of trust thing that goes on on both sides. Because you kind of recognize the family or you're like, oh, yeah, I know her from, you know, the school PTA or whatever. So it's it's a great way for kids to experience that first job, right, in a way that you used to be, you know, your parents, I just said, it would you know, drove me down to the local hotel and made me go hand in my resume to become a waitress. This is just the electronic way to do that. That's very cool. Especially if the kids are taking it up. That's usually a good indicator, and I, I quite and I quite like. Well, I was just quickly thinking there, but I, I, some kids in my neighbourhood all got on Facebook and told each other there was a party on down near the just around the corner from my, but just actually ne- right next to my house, and five hundred kids turned up, but they weren't neighbour, they weren't local kids. They come from fucking all over the joint, and they had the music beaten down like crazy. Um, so do you, do you control that sort of thing? Well, it's, it's harder to do that on Nextdoor because no one is going to, no kid is going to post, we're about to have a party because all the other neighbors can see it. So you can't hide. I love it. What's more likely is the neighbor will post like, what the hell is that noise? And then suddenly neighbors will jump in saying, oh, there's a party going on, but don't worry, I've already called the police, <laughs> right? So you more likely get the back end of that conversation than the front end. I love it. I want it. I want that one. I want that one. And it, it, does it have like local news uh, content? For example, you know, the like down the road, just put in an application to build a 20-story building. Yeah. It has that sort of stuff. That's exactly, yes. Yeah. So we see a lot of, yeah. So if you think about all of the participants in a neighborhood, there's clearly the neighbors, but then we will find a lot of um, what we call public agencies or public services. So the local fire department, the police department, the local mayor's office. Um, there's also folks like um, local businesses. So we particularly want to see more local businesses thriving because usually neighbors want to shop local. Um, charities, um, newspapers, you can imagine a long list of folks who are stakeholders in a local community. So, uh, I mean, that's sort of pretty cool because um, I, I live in Sydney, but I, I have a farm up at um, northern New South Wales. I'm in a place called Byron Bay. And See, you're a farm boy too. Yeah, I You were keeping that quiet. Well, my, my, my dad's <laughs> from a farming, uh, from a farming yeah. community in Greece, and uh, I don't go up there that often anymore, but when I go to my farm, I might go to the local coffee shop or the pub or something like that, and yeah. I'll be sitting there. And I'll be, and you go to buy a newspaper, and you get to get this the Sydney paper, the Daily Telegraph, and all it is is talking about the war in Iraq or Iran and stuff like that. Mm. And I used to think to myself, 
I actually want to get something that tells me about what's going on locally. Because, right. I mean, I, I don't visit Byron Bay that often, and therefore I would like to know what the hell's going on. Local news is dying. I mean, we really get concerned about news deserts. And what I mean by that is where the local paper has died off completely because it's actually often a way to sow a lot of division in a neighborhood because there's no more kind of arbiter of the truth, if that makes sense. So people can spread a lot of disinformation. So by bringing back local news content, and it can be really fun stuff like what's the local high school hockey team done, right? Yeah. I think about what used to be in our local paper. Um, but all the way through to important things, like maybe there's you know new a new road system being proposed or a new building being proposed. And so we often want to get those voices together. And that that isn't always happy schmappy. That can be very kind of heated debate because you usually end up with people very much on two sides of an argument. But you want to bring them away, bring them together in a way that they can respectfully disagree, but then hopefully get to a solution. Because it's not just about admiring the problem. We actually want to help solve the problem. So it's, it's, it's not just what we call classified ads here where someone's putting up a thing, look, I'm... Definitely not. I'll do no, no, a no. dog walker or I'm a babysitter yeah. or whatever. But it's also about uh, local content. Very, yes. And in times of disaster, I mean, having just landed in Australia this morning but seen all the wildfires, right, we find that Nextdoor really comes into its own, usually in times of duress, because that's where actually you won't get saved by the fire department, the police department, because they are overwhelmed. It's actually your neighbors who come save you. So, you know, we've lived wildfires in California We've seen people posting on the platform, this is the road that's still open, this is the road that's closed, don't go down here. We see in the lead up to people checking in, for example, with seniors and saying, hey, do you have someone that could drive you if you had to get out of here in a hurry? And then in particular, we see after the fact that communities that have strong weak ties, it's kind of a behavioral science term of weak ties, which aren't your family, but your neighbors, tend to survive and come back together. And communities that have none of those weak ties often just dissolve, right? They get scattered to the four winds, people move away, they're like, I don't want to live here anymore because my house just burned down. And, you know, what I saw happen in California during the wildfires, even for myself, we had a neighbor that literally was driving a truck up to Chico, which was near where the Paradise Fire happened last year. And he would just say, hey, truck's leaving two o'clock. I need bedding. I need um, diapers, nappies for kids. I need canned food. And like he showed the picture the first day. It still gives me goosebumps of his flatbed trunk with literally, you know, Mount Everest on top of it. And he had to take half the stuff off. And he was like, I can't drive with that much stuff. And so he's like, I'll do two runs. Um, like personally, I saw someone asking for a walker for an elderly person. So she and her husband lost their home. She's in one hospital. He's in the other. She doesn't have a walker anymore. And I was like, just tell me an address, and I'm just going to ship one up there. Um, I can buy that on, like, Walmart.com, and I will send it overnight um, because you just want to give. And I think this is goes back to the humanity. Right? I could go give to the Red Cross, but that feels less remote. human. It's remote. Yeah, versus knowing that I went and put bedding into the back of a flatbed truck that someone was going to drive there, right? There's a lot of humanity that I think people well, want to experience. Also, I, I love that because it, particularly with the bushfires because, I, yeah. I mean, I got I got a call from someone from Lismore, which is northern New South Wales um, mm-hmm. today, um, saying how he was concerned about the the fires were only seven or eight kilometers away from where he lived. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought to myself, if I'm going to give something, I'd rather give to people who live up in my area. It's more because it's relevant. Yeah. It becomes relevant to me. Exactly I mean, right. and the I, power of proximity, right? Yeah. Oh, that's it's what huge. you mean by the power of proximity. It's yeah. it, because it's physically, geographically, probably culturally, 
uh, relevant to me, that I want people in my area, northern New South Wales, to be okay. Yeah. And uh, that that's pretty cool. Like, uh, so... Where did the idea come from? Like, I don't know, like, who, who thought of next door? Where did so we have three amazing founders, Nirav, Sarah, and Prakash. Um, and where the idea came from is they actually saw two things. There was a, a book I highly recommend called Bowling Alone, written by a professor out of Harvard called Pro- Professor Putnam. As in, bowl, Putnam. as in bowling? Bowling. And yep. the idea is if you look, it, his research is based on the U.S., but actually it's it's a global phenomenon, effectively saying that the U.S. was a nation of joiners right up until about the 50s and 60s. So the Rotary Club, the Provost Club, the Boys and Girls Scouts, Scouts. Guides, and so on. And then actually you can link it closely to the advent of TV, which is effectively technology, is when people started moving off their front stoop in the evenings, they moved into the living room. And if you think about entertainment, it's kind of this conversation we're having about when you talk to someone, right? Yes, we're having supposedly entertainment together, but really we're having now a one-on-one relationship with the TV. And if I think about our living room at home today, like I'll have one kid on an iPad, one kid maybe on their phone, my husband probably watching the TV, and I've probably got a computer out and I'm doing some work. So we're physically all sitting next to each other, but none of us is in any way having a community experience. And so you saw this huge drop-off in community. And so Putnam actually shows that with that drop-off, right, the antithesis of strong communities happens. So test scores fall because neighbors aren't looking out for kids anymore. Health actually gets very bad. People suffer from loneliness, I think, Something like one in four Australians say they're lonely three times a week. Um, uh, 25% of Australians live alone. You've got an aging population. So there's a lot of health problems of not having strong community. And then with that wealth, right, the classic kind of broken window syndrome, right? If if I'm not picking the litter up, then I don't care about the broken pane of glass and suddenly no one cares and we live in then communities where no one takes any pride. And then it's funny because I was watching something or reading reading something the other day online about Two places in the world, Okinawa and a place in Greece called um, Ikaria. Yeah, people live the longest. They live the longest. Yeah. Um, and um, in particular, the average age of a man in uh, Ikaria is uh, 90 years of age. And one of the, the, they don't know what the weighting of this stuff is, but one of the strong components is that community, sense of community. Absolutely. And it's yeah. where I live. You know, I'm a bit of a narc. I, I don't really know my neighbours. I mean, I sort of know a couple of them, but I don't really hang out with them, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was a kid, if it rained, the lady next door would come and take our washing down. If it rained, she was there. My mum would take their washing down. We all, the kids all knew each other. We had a thing called Cracker Night, which is a uh, Guy Fawkes Night, which is, uh, oh, I can't remember, the 10th of June or something like that. Um, Guy Fawkes Night is in November. No, in Australia it's a different, <laughs> oh, okay. it's June. And we had a big bonfire, like a <laughs> oh. massive bonfire, and uh, you'd have, you know, tyres on top of it. And, yeah. and everyone on the street would go there and watch it. Um, and to some extent, it's not just the advent of the internet and television and those things. It's also the regulatory environment sort of killed a lot of these things. You can't have bonfires anymore. You can't have crackers anymore. A lot of the yeah. things that we we sort of did when we were growing up younger, which actually helped build our community, the regulatory environment has stopped all people scared about, oh, I better be careful. My kids shouldn't go and hang out with these people because I don't really know enough about them. Right, New people yeah. in the street. We shouldn't it's talk to them. Let's just... Yeah. Watch, we'll give them some time to see whether or not we're going to accept but them in the community. this is where, if you're on next door, what I see happen is I might put out a request, like I just did last week, saying, hey, my mom's going to be with me for Christmas and I really need a good physical therapist. My mom has a really bad hip. And, you know, three people responded. And so 
you start to build, you're like, oh, that Mark guy responded. That was really kind of him. Um, so maybe next time I see you, instead of being like, well, I don't want my kids to play with your kids because I don't really know, you're like, well, you know, it seems like a good guy. Maybe so it'd be so, okay. So when you put that yeah. out, you 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 bid it, and yeah. someone uh, makes an offer on it. Yeah. So you would say, looking for. I don't know, a therapist or whatever the words yeah. are. Um, and that's, that's, uh, and then someone comes and makes an offer to you. Yeah. Does it have, does that person have to be registered as a local person? Yeah. So I, incre- thank you. Incredibly important point about next door. So in that neighborhood that I was describing, you have to be verified that you live there. So right. it's very different from other social networks. So we, we haven't grown as fast because we actually put a lot of friction in the onboarding. Yeah. That's technical the, term. Yeah, um, but the friction is but, because you won't allow someone from outside of the area exactly. to come in. Exactly. Yep. We want to make sure that it's real people at real addresses. Yep. There's no bots. There's no kind of fake people. It also makes it much harder to do some of the more nasty side of social networks yep. because when you post, it's your name with your address. So yep. you kind of are your better self. Yeah. Um, and then we put a lot of stuff into the app to try to create kindness. We talk about kindness in our community. We launched something a few months ago here in Australia as well called Kindness Reminder. So if someone, if an argument is getting heated and people are starting to maybe not be their best selves, we will actually put a little modal that pops up that says, remember, great neighborhoods are created with kindness. The thing you're about to post looks like content that often gets reported. And what we see is that, um, you know, in over 30% of cases, people will actually rewrite what they were writing. The good news is they still post. How do you work that out? The, I mean, obviously not sitting there facilitating it. Is it an AI? We, uh, it's effectively, yeah. And yeah. we can see with ML on the yeah. platform what's happening right. from a data perspective. But yeah, we, we really go out of our way to try to put, actually it just came from the eSafety Commission, to put um, safety by design into the product because we think we're accountable for the conversations that go on and we want them to feel kind and considerate and we want you to feel like your neighborhood's this warm, welcoming place, not a scary place. And had, had, is monitoring this, I mean, obviously you've got to put your own set of social mores on it, like, mm-hmm. or is it community ethics? That, that I mean, comes back to the lead. So the reason why we choose this concept of a lead, and often there's multiple leads, like I met with a bunch of folks this morning, um, and in one neighborhood there were five leads, and they all actually get together and talk about how they want to, you know, and we have community guidelines. So how do they want to make sure community guidelines are being upheld? Um, So we wanted to feel local because, you know, I always say in the U.S., you know, being a Brit, an undercover Brit, because I sound American, um, and and I think Australia too, right? That humor can be kind of a little scathing and like, but it's, you know, when it's almost the most biting, it's the funniest. But if you were to do that humor in the U.S., people would be deeply offended. And so you can't have kind of a one-size-fits-all. It has to, when you're trying to build local and build community, you have to make it feel extremely local, right? We're in 11 countries. Um, You know, if you're in a community in Italy versus a community in Spain versus being in Scandinavia, right? People have very different mores. And you don't want to be too much like saying this is the way to do it. At the same time, we do have guidelines. So we're not a free speech platform. We're definitely a curated so you're not content pres- platform. But you're not prescriptive. No. You, but you give them a guideline? Exactly. Yeah. And then and then, what happens if you get five leaders in an area who just say, well, why don't we use this platform to take control of our, our zone? <laughs> you know, like they could be mad lefties or mad righties for that matter or some, some other thing yeah. um, and they politicize it. I mean – 
Yeah, so we're we're always watching for that. To begin with, there's um, any any member, any neighbor can report content. So even if, so, if a lead is going off the rails, they'll report that leads content right. too. Um, and effectively, what what we then look at is if enough content is being reported from any given person, then someone at next door will ultimately review that. And if we think that someone's getting too left or too right or too Political. on their own soapbox, actually, where we find it more is um, commercial, like they're. Like in the beginning in the U.S., we used to find real estate agents often wanted to be the lead because yeah, 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 cared yeah, a lot yeah. about the community for many reasons. And we had to remind them, hey, you have a business and we are very supportive. Real estate agents are welcome on the platform. You can build a business here, but that's not the whole reason you're on the platform. So we do some moderation from a next door standpoint as well. Yeah, so you don't let them curate it just for their own purpose. No, no. I mean, it's, it's very, I think it's a great, I love it. It's pretty cool. And, and I actually oh. think... The idea of people in a neighbourhood um, having this app or this platform via an app to be able to at least talk to each other yeah. and and trade with each other, but, you know, like that's if I I went back to my dad's village this year and um, one of the things I noticed was that um, in the village there's only 250 people there these days, but someone makes bread, someone makes wine, someone makes cheese, someone grows this type of vegetable, someone grows that type of fruit, um, someone's got chickens, and they all just trade it. Yeah, at one the little, they got one little store, and they all they they all know each other. Yeah. Everybody knows each other's business too, by the way, but <laughs> they all know each other. They all they get they have a central church in the middle, and it's like you go back, you could probably go back a thousand years, and these people st- were still behaving the same way. Yeah. Sort of what you're talking about is we, similar. We to that. have this amazing part of the platform called for sale and free, where effectively people can put something up for free, or if you want to clear out your garage, garage sale trail yep. has done a lot on Nextdoor actually. Um, so the platform's a year old. Here in Australia, we've seen about forty to fifty million dollars worth of for sale and free put on the platform. And people love it because it's kind of a trust thing. Of well, it's going to be my neighbor who shows up to buy my couch. So I feel safe doing that as well. In the U.S., we see $2.7 billion a month put on the platform. A month. (laughs) A month. So it's big business, like what people are trading in and out. And then where you were going, I think beyond for sale and free, there's something super interesting about borrow and barter. So not everyone, we joke about ladders, not everyone needs a 60-foot ladder. You probably need one in your cul-de-sac or in your, you know, your building. Um, and barter, I see that all the time in my neighborhood. Like people, I saw someone last week was like, I have lemons coming out of my ears, um, hanging off my Meyer lemon tree. Does someone want to come get them and, you know, leave me anything in, you know, in reply? That's sort of country, country people do that too. I mean, I've I've often thought about how cool it would be if someone in my neighborhood said, you know what, Mark, um, I'm going to take my truck and I'm going to go out to, um, the markets and I'm going to buy fresh f- fruit and veg. And I'm going to bring it in my truck and I'm going to bypass all the intermediaries, yeah. all the middle people. And I'm going to park my truck at the top of the street and I'm going to be there every Friday afternoon from four till seven. And just come up, I mean, like I want to make a dollar out of it. Uh, he wants to make a dollar out of it, but I can go up there and I can just choose what I want. Um, it, does that sort of thing happen? Have you seen something like that come out, out of next door where people yeah. actually – 
start running, not not businesses, but they make money out of it, but something really convenient? They Absolutely. So I was in Atlanta last week, and actually we were doing a whole event with Feed, which Feed America is about the fact that 40 million Americans face food insecurity. I They might not know where the next meal is coming from. And so there what people were doing were creating community gardens. So it was kind of a greening of the city, which is great to begin with. But then they were bringing all that um, fresh fruit and veggies to exactly what you're talking about, saying, hey, show up. And, you know, today we have, you know, zucchini growing out of our ears or courgettes or whatever you call it in this country. Zucchini. Zucchini. Okay, good. Um, And... You know, they they weren't really in it to make profit, but they were in it to give particularly inner city kids fresh vegetables. Because if you are right on the borderline of being able to afford your next meal, you never buy fresh because fresh goes Mm. bad and fresh is expensive. You buy like packaged noodles and you buy things that keep forever but have almost zero nutritional value. And so that's kind of a coming together of people who want to green the city and love getting urban garden going want the convenience of maybe a little business to go alongside it, and they're fulfilling this amazing need, which is how do you get fresh produce in for families that maybe couldn't afford it under normal circumstances. I, I, I love that idea. And, and and I have to ask you this question, what is the financial model? So what's oh, yeah. the, what's your business model? Because yeah, I mean, we I, are a for-profit. So we, you we, are for-profit. Yeah, we are a yep. for-profit. Yep. Um, we're working on it because we're still a startup. But Really, three ways we make money. So today we work with um, one part of the community I didn't mention is national um, advertisers, in our case, who want to act local. Um, So a good example would be Woolworths here, right? I grew up with a Woolworths in my local town. And, you know, I see happening local to us. Like, often stores will say, hey, moms, come in for back-to-school shopping and we'll do a kid's crafts for an hour so your kids are taken care of while you get all your shopping done. So we see a lot of national advertisers. Secondly is local businesses. They pay. They pay the platform. They've got plenty of money. Um, Second is local deals. So um, local businesses who want to give a local deal into the community. And we think that's a great way to ask neighbors to shop local, but a local business can kind of decide they only want to keep it in a small radius so they don't get that kind of bad outcome of, say, a Groupon years ago. And then we're starting to work with, um, on our agency platform, which is what we use for police forces and fire departments, we're starting to work with folks like, say, the utilities, so the electric company, the transportation, because they also want to be able to post to neighbors to say things like, like in my case, we've had rolling blackouts. Um, so the electricity company wants to tell neighbors that we will charge them for that posting because they're for profits. Yeah. So that's becoming a really interesting so that's, third and way. That's, and is that the sole way you guys have funded yourself or you've done it through investors as well? We, we're also VC funded. Right, VC um, funded. We're a Silicon Valley company yep. um, where we were founded. And so you know, it's a wonderful part of the tech ecosystem sitting in San Francisco is there is funding to be had. VCs are willing to kind of lean in something that you need to build before you begin to monetize. And and uh, in your role, I'm always curious how people make their pitch when they, especially in Silicon Valley. But in your role, what's what do you say to everybody who does invest in this? What what could be the end game? What are the two or three things? So where do you end up with this? Yeah. So I mean, I think number one, we're a very purpose driven company. So we do want to build stronger local communities. So I think there's a role in the world for just funding a company that will do that. I think we will be this incredibly unique platform for local businesses. So local businesses spend a lot, but don't get necessarily a lot back, right? They don't really know where their ad spend is going. Um, I get a ton of 
just mail from real estate agents, for example. And if we can be the electronic platform that allows you to much better target in a hyper-local way, I think that is a massive business opportunity, right? In Australia, 94% of all the businesses who employ more than four people are small local businesses. And I came from Square, so I've spent the last seven plus years of my life only thinking about small businesses. Um, And then the third piece is I think there's also a lot of money spent by these municipalities across the globe. And again, I think we are a very hyper-local targeted way to get your message out. So if you multi, you know, it's kind of a scale business, but actually also a very good margin business. So it's not been a tremendously hard pitch. How many countries are you in now? 11. 11 countries. And Australia is one year old? Australia is one year old. Uh, like literally like one year at the moment or? Uh, one year, I think last, maybe like three weeks ago. Oh, one year, three. Yeah. And you're here to do what at the moment? You're going around just seeing everyone here in Australia? I wanted to, you know, I, I said when I joined Nextdoor, I wanted to visit every country in my first year um, that we we're in. And so Australia is my 10th country. I'm not going to tell you which country I've not been to yet. Um, I didn't quite realize how big a goal that would be to set myself, but it's great to just hear. I mean, the most surprising thing is, frankly, we have way more in common as humans than we have differences, right? People are like, oh, it must be so different talking to neighbors in Sweden versus, you know, the UK versus Australia. No, we're all human at heart. People are all struggling with the same things. And I think they all want stronger local communities. And how many um, next doors leaders or groups do you have here in Australia now? Uh, in Australia right now, we have, um, we're have we in 77% of all of the households of Australia live inside a next-door neighborhood. 77%? Yeah. Wow. In a year. Wow. It's been our fastest-growing country, I think, faster than Canada, faster than the UK. Wow. Um, well, if, if you're listening to this, uh, uh, what we're suggesting, you, get, you, you go online and look at what? Go to nextdoor.co.au, um, actually. .co.au, yep. 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 Um, and you can download the app and find your neighborhood and get going on it. And, and you, you have to register? You do have to yep. register. You have to prove you yep. live in that neighborhood. And how neighborhood. do you prove the show rates notice or something? Or uh, uh, Yeah, you, we're, we're just matching your name and your or your email to your address. We can mostly do that electronically, yep. so it'll happen seamlessly in the background Worst case, we send you a postcard in the mail with a verification code on it. But with that, you get this trust factor of the people you're talking to really are your neighbors. I love it. I, I really, Thanks, really love this idea. I, I, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to look it up. Is it like municipality driven? Like Watson Bay is one suburb. Is it like... Uh, no, typically we would see, um, you know, we'd goal at probably a thousand households. So it's actually yeah. it tends to be much smaller. It's truly it should feel like your neighborhood not like a whole city. Yeah, yeah. So it really is my neighborhood. So yes. because uh, I, I I really dig it as a as a community. I really like the community there, and um, I, I I I'm going to register. I reckon it's cool. Very cool idea. I want to say thank you very much for coming in here. I'm most privileged to have someone of your no, ilk thank in you. front of me. Um, our listeners are going to get a real lot out of this. And uh, what's one thing as a as a woman in tech? you would say to all the younger women in tech out there who listen to this, what would you say to them about the nervousness and or the, from time to time, the the fact that they feel unhappy that they haven't actually achieved anything. They might be studying engineering, they might be doing a, a postgrad degree, they might be working somewhere, you know, one of the big banks in technology, where they sort of get a little bit to a point where they think, shit, I'm never going to get anywhere with this. This is a man's world. It's controlled by the men, which you know, to a large extent it is, what, what would you say to them? What's one bit of advice? So 
The thing I would change most would be not to have to be perfect all the time. So I felt in my younger days, when I was in high school and then when I went to college, that I had to be the A student. And it, I think, held me back. I don't think I took enough risks at that point. And even right for a long time in my career, because I always wanted to be perfect. So that meant that to do it, I had to make sure I could be perfect. And I don't think men struggle with that at all. Um, it's the classic thing of, you know, when you're interviewing, if a man looks at a, a rack and thinks he can do 50% of it, he's all in. Of course I could do that. And women look at it, and if they could do 99, they're like, oh, I'm missing one. So just lean in and just don't feel like you need to be perfect. And let's make sure it's not a man's world, right? Women are uniquely, I think, positioned to do well in where technology is going, which is this overlay of the IQ plus the EQ, like 10, you know, huge stereotype about to happen, but tend to be much more collaborative, much more communicative places where technology is leading us. And so women, we have to be there if we're going to build platforms that serve the greater good and serve the world. And you said it right at the very beginning, I'm, I'm sorry to go back there, but you made a really good point about overthinking things. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say about, because I think that the nature of an engineer or a nature of a technology person or a nature of a science-driven individual might be in the health sciences, et cetera, and that particular individual who might be trying to break into the sorts of areas that you're broken into in your successful careers, their nature is they do tend to overthink things and they just don't do what Nike said, just do it. What do you think about that? I mean, is that is that a lesson you've learned? I think... Yeah, I I wish I had just gone for it much earlier. Now, I cut myself a little break because in the middle of like that longer period of my career when I worked in banking, I also had two kids. And so at some point, something's got to give. But Hopefully not the kids. <laughs> I'm not planning to give them away, <laughs> although sometimes they drive me there. No, I love them dearly. Um, no, no, they no. of course will be listening. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think you do need to, you know, like I said, you don't need to be perfect, right? You learn so much more when you fuck it up, frankly. Totally, totally. So lean into that and like make your mistakes. Um, because that's the big learning in life. Like that is actually how you grow and you get to the next thing. You, you just, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I've done it myself. I overthink things a lot and, uh, I tend to operate best when I act, actually act on instinct, actually act and do it, do it mm-hmm. quickly. And Gary V says, you've got to get off your ass and just have a fucking crack. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's one of the best. He says it very <laughs> deftly, and uh, we know exactly what he's talking about. Thank you very much. Sarah Thanks, Fry, Sarah. it's a great privilege to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 